Nothing means anything, we live in a zoo, but we pay for our cages and our feedings to hoo-hoo. Let's talk about life, life in the human zoo. Welcome to Life in the Human Zoo. I'm Mike O'Connell, your host for a weekly compendium of stories, music, poetry, and some of the wisest wisdom available to humankind. So let us start our journey of absurdity now. Oh shit, the poetry trough is overflowing today with two heaping servings. Who are we to deserve such a bountiful cornucopia of verbiage? We are us, and yes, we do deserve said verbal cornucopia, because we are fucking worth it. The first serving from the trough is called I Dropped Acid at the Dog Park. I dropped acid at the dog park. The child that found it went five kinds of insane. The child's owner got super rude and attitudinal. But I say he owes me ten bucks just the same. When I dropped that acid in that dog park, I expanded that child's mind. Sure, it was a mistake that I'd surely back take. But that acid was supposed to be all mine. As my mom used to say, what the fuck was that, Mike? Up next, we have a spoken piece for human voice. It's called... Reflections on Finding an Old Failed Math Test Some days ago, I was sifting through the papers I had allowed to accumulate in my cage. And that certain melancholic mood that hovers over the act of one sifting through one's papers hovered above me. These are the various financial and emotional documents that would be used as evidence were my existence ever called into question, I thought. And there, amongst the tax forms and highly salacious letters from former lovers, was an innocuous pink paper peeking out of the pile. I innocently pulled it from the mass to find it was not as innocuous as I had calculated. For before me, I held in my quaking fingers a math test on which I had received the shameful score of 38 out of 100. That is no emaciated and famished F. That is an obese and brazen F. But this F was only a piece of shrapnel in the war between math and I. The war had been long and bloody. Math always winning. As I looked down at this relic from my past, many questions careened through my number intolerant mind as a tear fell directly into the center of one of the many red X's on the paper. The first question was, of course, what hath I done to math that math hath wrought such misery upon me for these many moons? Had I, in a past life, perhaps done math wrong? Was I maybe a bishop in the third century who drew and quartered mathematicians? You would have thought that I personally burned so many theorems in the libraries of Alexandria for math to be so repulsed and unwelcome in my mind. What cosmic crime have I committed that math would want to do me so dirty? The second question, naturally, was... What god or demon made me such an unreliable calculator? 
I often think of my mathlessness as the doing of some bully demon god who is fed solely by my anxiety when put in close proximity to a mathematical quandary. The bully demon god grew fat in my youth, feeding ravenously on choice Ds and succulent Fs. The bully demon was worried that my numerological failures would end with my schooling, but was happily surprised to see that my adulthood would also be riddled with mathematical inconsistencies. The bully demon god especially likes to check in to watch me have fits at the bank. And then the third obvious question arose in my mind. Why the fuck don't I throw this away? So I threw it away. But as I was throwing it away, I realized that this would bring me no victory. For what is throwing something away, if not subtraction? Math wins again. Math always wins. The second serving from the Poetry Trough is a musicified version of an especially dramatic poem I wrote entitled Festival of loneliness. The Barker Barks is haunting call. There's much to see. Come one, come all. Bear witness to the mighty fall. At my festival of loneliness Let's celebrate my weary lot This cursed heart that love knows not This blackened soul that God forgot At my festival of loneliness The children play and the lovers dance The poets hypothesize romance Alas, I'll never have that chance At my festival of Along the streets, my lonely heart pulse keeps their beat as it lay trampled neath their feet at my festival of loneliness. So drink the wine made from my tears and sip the stew made from my fears in remembrance of the bygone years at my festival of loneliness. The children play and the lovers dance. The poets hypothesize romance Alas, I'll never have that chance At my festival of loneliness I seem to have no regress From this festival of loneliness It seems to be the reason I was born I wish I could just see the end Or perhaps a road with a minor bend But this loneliness somehow is set in stone Did the festival have to be so grim The penance does not match the sin The thread I dangled from is thin And the world seems not to care But along with joy all hope is gone This nightmare seems to ramble on And at no point can I reflect and smile My festival of loneliness It is a shroud, nay it's a dress That I must wear each day that I am here my grave but can't seem to die I beg and shout to the gods on high But they just laugh at this sad mess That is my festival of loneliness The 
Up next, we have a story with a lesson at the end. It's a little story I like to call, Liquor Be Making You Think You're All Kinds of Fancy. Agreement amongst humans is a rare thing indeed. Religiously, we are incompatible. Politically and poetically, we have never been more divided. Culinarily, we disagree so sharply that as earthlings, we cannot even agree on an official sandwich for the planet. If there is, however, something that we can all collectively agree upon, it is this. Liquor be making you think you're all kinds of fancy. No substance will escalate your confidence and eradicate your shyness quite the way that liquor does. Liquor-based confidence makes the poor feel rich and the rich feel like gods. It is this confidence that has made liquor the boon and bane of humanity, since the first cave dweller accidentally fermented a beverage that made him decorate his walls with drawings of enormously fat gerbils. It is this confidence that inevitably leads one directly into absurd and deeply shameful situations. With this in mind, I ask you to join me on a journey into the past as we find ourselves in the mid to late 90s in New Orleans on the birthday of my then-girlfriend, Eileen. As is the case with many, alas, Eileen openly fancied her birthday more important than D-Day, the signing of the Magna Carta, and that day a globular being oozed forth from the primordial stew combined. As far as she was concerned, if she was never born, the world would not exist at all, and therefore the day she sprang forth from her mother's lap naturally held great significance. Or she was just excited to get a bunch of attention and presents and shit, I never did figure out which. This was all fine and good for her, but for her lover, namely me, this led to an immense amount of pressure to plan an amazing extravaganza that would be relished until the next birthday. I vowed quietly in my mind to make sure this was her best birthday ever, a birthday of such glory that it would truly be unusual. I momentarily ignored my lack of monies as I had decided that if one was to please one's lover on one's lover's birthday, one must invest heavily in the project. I bought a blazer so as to look dashing. I entrusted and paid a stranger to take scissors to my mane so as to look well quaffed. I wore a fucking tie so as to confuse her into thinking she was dating a big boy adult. I purchased flowers and chocolates and all of the other cliches unexperienced rubes are jackassily want to purchase to bring a smile to the lid of ladies. Eileen, and perhaps this is why we gelled so famously, was the type of lass who enjoyed immensely to drink in the daytime. And as such, we began beverageizing Bloody Marys around 1pm at Igor's, and due to our late and drunken evening the night before, we were quickly brought back to a place of great and inebriated revelry. As we became drunken, we laughed and we laughed and we laughed to the point where drunk people accused us of being drunk and theorized aloud that we were perhaps psychotic. This was not the case. We were buzzed, sure, but the joy we conveyed that day was not that of drunkenness, but that of two people who were in the deepest admiration of each other, or as the poets call it, love. I quickly commandeered a cab and we went to Commander's Palace, where she was very impressed when I demanded to see the wine list, but then ordered two shots and two beers. This is the man of my dreams, her eyes seemed to say, and mine echoed back, and you, my lady the woman of mine. We dined on food that tasted of the heavens and left as sated as a gluttonous man after a four-whopper binge in the Burger King parking lot. We then retired to sing karaoke on Bourbon Street at the Cat's Meow, 
and continued to abuse alcohol in a way that we had not engaged in since the day before. The booze began to catch up with us as our reflexes slowed and our capacity to think clearly dwindled. I watched her on stage singing Come On Eileen for the third time, a problem of hers that I do believe led to our eventual breakup, when Dionysus himself floated down from Olympus to hand me what seemed like a brilliant idea. I opined that there would be no ending to the evening that would be as perfect as me surprising her with a hotel room and mountain the ever-loving shit out of her waba with my rumpatay. I decided I was unworthy of her affections if this did not come to pass. So we stumbled from the bar and I dragged her through the streets dead set on finding a hotel. There must have been a convention or some shit in town as all of the hotels seemed to be booked. However, not easily swayed from a terrible idea, I remembered that there was a YMCA right off of Lee Circle and while it surely was no Ritz, we needed not high-end bedding on which to practice our coital exercise. I went to the desk of the Y and behaved as if it were the Ritz. Life is all in your head anyhow, I figured. The birthday lady and I would like to make love in one of your rooms and perhaps take a small nap when we are all fucked out. Is this possible? Behind the counter, a malformed gentleman responded, $30 for the night with the $30 deposit. We're out of fucking towels, so don't even ask. Sounds delightful, I said. Where do I sign? He gave me the key, and we walked to the second floor. As we stumbled down the hallway, I began to kiss her with the passion of five to seven men. We were both ready to make the love of our lives as I unlocked the door and said, My lady, our fuck hut for the evening. At that very moment, a light went on in the room, and a naked man of great girth sprung forth from the bed and screamed, What the fuck are you doing in here? Get the fuck! Fuck out of here! I saw only a tiny penis dwelling among a sea of pale flesh and what seemed to be hundreds of Snickers wrappers on the ground before I slammed the door shut. This shocked the birthday girl so deeply that she actually wept. I marched right down to the check-in and said, Sir! There is a man in our room, and that man is surrounded by hundreds of Snickers wrappers and naked as the day he was born. Did you tell me this would be the case when I checked in? I'm sorry, I gave you the wrong key. He told me as my lady wept behind me. I would like my money back. I can only give back your deposit. Too drunk to argue and too worried about my lady's deeply disturbed innocence, I conceded. We waited what seemed like four eternities for the streetcar to return uptown. It arrived and we flopped onto a bench exhausted. She passed out on my shoulder as I watched the driver scream at the drug addicts and the drunks and the drunk drug addicts. What can we learn from this tale? This is the rare tale that leaves only one lesson to be learned, and that lesson is simple. Liquor be making you think you're all kinds of fancy, and you ain't. Trust me, you ain't fancy at all. You ain't shit. Thank you for auditorily engaging with Life in the Human Zoo this week. We couldn't be happier that you did so. Special thanks to Henry Phillips for orchestrating Festival of Loneliness. Today's song at the end is about when a lover does the most dastardly thing a lover can do. Tell you how you should change. Most of the time, they are probably right, and the suggested machinations would greatly improve your life. But I will be Sky Papa damned if such a speech doesn't turn one into the stubbornness of human donkeys that's ever trotted the pockmarked face of this earth. It is called, I Know It Hurts. 
Have a lovely week, and may Sky Papa hold you close to his bosom and fulfill even your most foolhardy whim. Farewell. The gods must have come down and placed the crown of knowledge upon your head. Well, they left me without to deal with the situation on my own instead. Must be nice to be sure Come from a place so secure When ignorance is the only case I can plead But I was impressed With the scope and the breadth Of the wisdom that you had for me You said I know it all that I saw It was quite a relief to belie my belief that I knew reality at all They say the world is made for lovers But who are they and what do they know They can't see the tears that I'm crying and the drinks that I'm buying to make your memory go You said I know it hurts But you need to hear it It could possibly make you the person I think you should be If not for you then for me If not for you then for me You need to